In a world ruled by emotion, where reason is abandoned, God is forsaken, and history forgotten, two brave men will attempt to do the unthinkable. Use their brains. Armed with ancient wisdom, they will bring light into our modern world. This is the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. I'm your host, Evan, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Dan. What's going on, everybody? Today in episode 20, the American Revolution Debate. Here's what we're going to cover on today's show. A brief history of the lead-up to the American Revolution. We're going to evaluate the injuries and usurpations listed in the Declaration of Independence. Were they really that bad? Then, the revolution and its immediate aftermath along with the ideas that ignited the rebellion, counter-arguments against these ideas, and when is rebellion justified? That'll be a fun discussion. And there'll be additional points of contention between myself and Dan. What made the American Revolution different from similar and contemporary revolutions? And lastly, some alternative history. What if America stayed a colony without trying the revolution? Let's start off with a brief history of the lead-up to the revolution. Beginning in 1607 with the establishment of the earliest colony in Virginia, and later the rest of New England, then the middle colonies like Pennsylvania and New York, and ending with Georgia, the last of the southern colonies to be established in 1732, the British slowly claimed the east coast of America as its own. Throughout this long process, many generations were born, lived, and died as colonists and never saw England as their home. This perception grew with each passing decade, as colonial populations increased and urban centers exploded, and it inevitably cracked the foundation of England's hold on the 13 colonies. Granted, even more than 150 years after the earliest colonies were founded, many colonists still felt loyal to the crown, and so the pejorative loyalist was born. This difference in perceived identity led to heated debate within intellectual circles, in pamphlets distributed throughout America, and the formation of seditious gatherings in bars and back rooms in major towns, where average citizens would stir up revolutionary sentiments. What helped drive these groups further apart was the passage of several British laws which directly impacted the colonies in the decade or so prior to the revolution. Famous examples included the Sugar Act and the Stamp Act, but there were plenty of others. Many of these laws, like the Townshend Revenue Act, were intended to increase the tax revenue generated by the colonies by placing duties on goods like tea, glass, paint, and paper. And why did Britain need more money, you might ask? Well, we all need more money, but the British had just secured a victory in the French and Indian War in 1763, which left them in serious debt. Since the war was fought to defend the colonies from French influence, the British thought it made sense to tax them. And let me say, in, in Europe, it was known as the Seven Years' War, because the war was outside of America. But these tax increases and regulations were met with hostility and later violence. As unrest increased, uh, British soldiers were quartered in colonial urban centers. This only angered the colonists further, leading to mild skirmishes, including the infamous Boston Massacre, which was, admittedly, one of the earliest examples of fake news in America. As a result, the British repealed some of their laws, except a 3% tax on tea as part of the Tea Act, which they left in place to, number one, maintain their ability to tax the colonies in general, and number two, to funnel money to the struggling British East India Company, who had suffered massive financial losses as a result of unstable markets, political unrest in the East, and the recent French and Indian War. This act also permitted the British East India Company to have a monopoly on tea sales in North America, another reason the colonists were upset. This culminated in the 1773 Boston Tea Party, where the equivalent of $1.7 million worth of tea was dumped into Boston Harbor by the Sons of Liberty, not the Sons of Antiquity, sadly. We were not there. Not only was this a protest against the Tea Act specifically, it was a protest against the lack of colonial representation in British Parliament. The British government could pass laws, levy taxes, and quarter troops in the colonies without the, quote, consent of the governed. In response, the British government passed the Coercive Acts, or the Intolerable Acts, depending on who you asked, which closed Boston's port and banned town meetings. They followed this up with attempts to disarm the colonists by seizing weapons and ammunition. You can guess how that turned out. As the colonists continued to resist these attempts, 
Local leaders organized militias and hid weapons and ammunition from British soldiers. The Continental Congress convened for the first time in late 1774. And finally, on April 19th of 1775, Minutemen clashed with British soldiers at Lexington and Concord, which officially kicked off the revolution. Now let's talk about the Declaration of Independence. To most Americans, it is the most famous and the most epic document ever. It's huge, believe me. The founders used it as a, a way to list off their grievances with King George and explain the reasons why they wanted to separate from England. So let's dive in and discuss the biggest uh, grievances they had and see how our perspectives differ on them. And I will butt in after each one and give my opinion. Give his hot take, not just an opinion. He's going to give the spicy hot take. So let's begin with the first quote. Uh, he has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. Now, I'd say the definition of t tyranny is rule for private gain, not lack of representation in a legislative body. So rule for private gain can be done in any form of government. See episode one, Anacyclosis. A very good point. And uh, to reference you know, modern politics, obviously there's a lot of private gain going on in Washington. And, you know, we're not we're not writing a Declaration of Independence. We probably should, but we're not. We're letting them get away with private gain and we're just shrugging our shoulders. So that, it's a little bit uh, hypocritical for people to point to that and say, rah, 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 that's so great. And then they turn around and let people in Washington do what they want. Next, he has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose, obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. I was a little bit confused by this one. I guess I don't know the context as well as I should. Um, is the declaration claiming that Britain prevents most immigration to the colonies? Do you think that's what it's saying? I tried to look into it, and I couldn't quite find any sources that clarified that. So it, it may have been kind of a, a reference to something that's a little bit obscure to historians now, but it sounds to me like that's what they're saying, that they were preventing people from becoming colonists or becoming part of the colonies. My other idea was maybe it was a complaint of not letting them go as westward as they wanted to. I think that is is true. I think they were restricting their ability to expand out west. And there was a lot of political issues with that, of course, because there were the Native Americans there, there were the French. And there was an issue of, okay, do we make these different states or do we just make them super long states? Like, do we just extend from the East Coast and go out? And so... Well, the British didn't even want them to go past the Appalachians. Yes. Um, probably because they'd be too far away to govern them because they would not only have to get across the ocean to get them under control, but then they'd have to cross land too. Well, that was the cynical opinion of the colonists, or at least the patriots. Mm -hmm. But also because they had deals with the Native Americans like treaties that they wanted to uphold. True. And they'd be harder to tax if they were further in. Mm -hmm. That too. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. Yeah, that seems annoying and inefficient. Definitely. I guess the king didn't want the colonial judicial system to be independent of Britain because that could be kind of slippery slope if you give them their own judiciary and then all of a sudden they're ruling against like the king or something. That would be a little too much. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. It's a valid criticism for sure. And America has had standing armies for a long time now. So I I think there's no end in sight for that. But it's something that we should be wary of, of having these standing armies. Most of the time they're away in some other lands. So they're not just hanging out ready to rebel. Unfortunately, they're off somewhere. But we can say now Congress does approve of this heartily. It's almost... The only bipartisan thing left is to fund the DOD. Yes, gigantic military spending is, uh, yeah, a big bipartisan issue, or a big bipartisan has support. So there's consent of our legislators, but the issue at hand remains. And I'd say we're doing way worse than the British did. They didn't have nearly as many troops as we have, of course, even proportionally. Next up for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us and for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states. 
you know, I this is just my speculation, but I think they're talking about the Boston Massacre, protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they commit on the inhabitants of these states. So many murders. Yeah, just a few violent protesters. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think you mean peaceful protesters. Yeah, just throwing, mostly peaceful. Just throwing rocks and clamoring. Anyways, uh, that's a completely separate issue. We can talk about some other time, but I would agree that soldiers should not be forcibly housed in the homes of civilians. I think that's just common sense. They should just go to their barracks. What about for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world? What about that, huh? Again, every one of these, not everyone, but many of these have been just contradicted by modern American history. (laughs) Actually, all of American history has been filled with embargoes and trade regulations with other nations. Um, But I'd also like to say, I wonder how well their economy was doing, because I actually don't know how bad of an impact this had. Were they struggling because of these prohibitions? Because they they could still trade with Britain and with themselves. Yes. They were just concerned that they were getting a raw deal and that if they, like in the case of the monopoly with the uh, British, uh, the East India Company, that they could have gotten better deals, I guess, by trading with other nations, especially like France, you know, because France and England at the time were butting heads. You know, they they were dueling world powers and they thought that that monopoly was hurting them and that they could maybe do better in a more quote-unquote free market, I guess. So I don't know that there's necessarily direct evidence that they were just so impoverished and hurting so bad, but they thought that they could have a better deal, I think. Yeah, so I I actually don't know how well they were doing with that limited trade network. If they were doing pretty well, I think it's just kind of greedy almost to just say, oh, we want more and more, we want the best and the best. Not to start a war over it, at least. And I'd say limiting trade with foreign enemies is not tyranny. It's just common, sensible policy, and it continues even to this day. Well, especially if they were at war with the French or at odds. Yeah, I can understand that. What about for imposing taxes on us without our consent? Oh, here we go. It's a valid valid concern, but it's a concern that we share with the colonists. Mm -hmm. How's the situation any different now? That's what all governments do. I never told them that I would gladly pay my income tax. I never said, sign me up. I would love to pay, you know, with state and federal, I'd love to pay over a third of my income just to the government, not into, not including sales tax, property tax, all that other stuff. But is it since, since we have my democracy, it's okay? Give me a break. Come on, man. For depriving us, in many cases, of the benefits of trial by jury. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with that one. If that's, that's true. a fair then, one. Yeah, that's fair. For transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses. Well, I guess the pretended is their opinion, but just to be sent overseas to be tried, very inefficient. And yes. you're wasting everybody's time and money for that. Really, they should have. the British should have just set up British judges that stationed themselves in America that were loyal to the crown. They're, they could even be from Britain and they like serve their time. But I don't know. I don't know why they didn't do that. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy, scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. All right, even I'll admit that one's a little bit of an exaggeration. Big overkill there. Considering that America relied on German mercenaries and the French troops to win the revolution, it's pretty ironic. Yeah. I mean, to describe him as as worse than the most barbarous ages, I mean, that's just... These were educated guys. They knew that that was hyperbole. Like, they knew about the Crusades. So, come on now. This concludes our review of the Declaration's worst grievances. Next up, the revolution itself and its aftermath. We won't go into the details of all the battles in this eight-year war, and most of us already know how things played out. Instead, let's talk about how the colonists won the war and what happened right afterwards. Whether you believe the American Revolution was righteous and justified or simply foolish and selfish, you cannot deny that it is one of the greatest underdog stories in history. At the time, the British possessed the most powerful army and navy in the world. By contrast, the colonists were more like a ragtag group of young, drunken rebels. How did they succeed in the face of overwhelming odds? Here's a short list. They had shorter supply lines and a strategy which disrupted British supply lines, playing the home field advantage. 
Speaking of home field advantage, guerrilla warfare, as opposed to the traditional gentlemanly way of fighting that the British were accustomed to, was utilized. The French aided the colonists, and French forces drew British personnel away from colonial posts to protect foreign territories, such as Indonesia and the Caribbean islands. Loyalists feared retribution at the hands of their patriot neighbors, so turncoat numbers were lower than needed, plus there was little Native American support for the British, although they would side with the British more so than the Americans, I'm pretty sure, but mostly they stayed out of it, I think. Parliament was divided on the issue of American independence, and as the war grew longer and more expensive, the popularity declined. Sounds familiar. In essence, the British failed to heed Sun Tzu's wisdom. They underestimated their enemy, and it cost them. And another issue is that the British did not take full advantage of large slave populations in the colonies. They could have turned them against their former owners, uh, but did not focus on the strategy enough. I I must note that the British did employ a policy of emancipation. Um, for military service for American slaves, but only a few thousand took them up on the offer. And then after the war was over, they they kept their promise, and they sent the slaves up to Canada somewhere, but then the white people hated them there, so they shipped them off to Liberia, where they formed the elite of Liberia. Oh, okay. But then they actually became like the oppressors in Liberia against the native Africans there. Imagine that. It's a crazy world, man. All of these small details added up to a victory for the colonists and the eventual signing of the Treaty of Paris in 1783. But what happened after that? The 13 colonies originally united under the Articles of Confederation, which were ratified in 1781, while the war was ongoing. The system was much looser than the system we know today, and this is due to extreme distrust of central authority by many of the founders. Gee, I wonder why. They hesitated to create a government that would treat its citizens the way England had treated them. But over the next few years, the system proved to be too laissez-faire, making it difficult to organize the military in defense against the British or other foreign enemies and collect tax revenue for debts after the war. Sound familiar? There was also no executive or judiciary branch, as Congress was the final arbiter in conflicts between states. So in 1787, after years of debate, delegates from across the young nation came together to argue some more over the Constitution. Actually, they came to amend the Articles of Confederation, and they had a coup. Yes, yeah, well, there Basically, was a lot of conflict there going on. There was, sure. a, yeah, a lot of conflict, but it became a coup to replace the document instead of amend it. Anyways, despite wildly different views on issues like slavery, the economy, a possible return to monarchy, state representation, travel and commerce, a central bank, and the need for a Bill of Rights, the Constitution was finally ratified in 1788, and soon thereafter, the delegates set about drafting the Bill of Rights, which was ratified in 1791. In the first few decades after the founding, the population of America more than doubled, the economy grew, the people expanded westward, and the nation we know today began to take shape. As for long-term impact, the American Revolution inspired other democratic revolutions around the world, none of which had quite the same success as America. Over the next two centuries, Western nations slowly adopted many of the democratic or republican elements of our government and incorporated them into their own. Let's talk about the ideas which ignited the rebellion in the first place. Here's the the biggest one, the famous no taxation without representation. If we are not represented in parliament, we have no obligation to pay taxes. That was the idea. They were also abused by mercantilism and monopolies, so the colonists had had enough of that and they wanted to rebel. Love of liberty above all else. Remember Patrick Henry's famous words, give me liberty or give me death. They valued liberty specifically over things like authority or the uh, sanctity of uh, the monarchy. The colonists were also used to British salutary neglect, and then they were surprised when the British started intervening. Basically, the British said, hey, we'll leave you alone if you do what we say. And then when they didn't obey that, then, of course, the British came in and and wanted to straighten things out. And then they were surprised when the British did that. No allegiance owed to tyrants. Uh, From the Declaration, they said, a prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. So look, if you're acting like a tyrant, don't expect us to obey you. Republicanism and liberalism, in the old sense of wanting individual freedom, not the modern liberalism of the Democratic Party, uh, are legitimate. That's what they thought. While monarchism and Toryism should have been rejected. Then there was, of course, the right to bear arms. Uh, During the lead-up to the revolution, the British were trying to uh, steal 
weapons and ammunition that the colonists thought they had a right to own. So there was a big struggle over that. Hey, don't take my means of defense. And then uh, lastly, the quartering of troops without consent of households or towns that didn't want the troops there. Now let me bring up some counter arguments. The French and Indian War defended the colonies from, well, the French and the Indians. So they, they needed the debts to be repaid. War is expensive. To be defended by someone without respecting or compensating him is the epitome of freeloading. Now that was, I mean, you can argue with if you, if you want to, but that's what it was. I mean, they were defended by foreign powers and the Native Americans by the British. And then after the fact, were asked to pay a little bit of it back. It would never even come close to f- covering the full cost of the war. Yeah, especially when they repealed all those other taxes and left just a 3% tax on tea. You're right. It wouldn't have come close. It was just a way to help. And a way to bail out a company that was too big to fail. Well, <laughs> that's gotcha. true as well, but that's yeah, no, not I, the I, only issue going on here. I know. I, I agree with you as far as the war debt thing. Yeah, they they expended a lot of men and a lot of money to defend them, and then they just spat in their face. I can kind of see that. A system where people revolt whenever they disagree with the government is inherently unstable. It wouldn't last long. Now we can point to a previous episode where we discussed the Whiskey Rebellion, where they used the same principles of, I don't want to pay this tax. It's draconian. It was draconian for the time, but not for now, on whiskey, which was also a commodity. So whenever they did that, uh, Washington said, well, that doesn't work anymore. We're going to put you down. And he sent, sent the army in to crush a tax revolt. Yeah, when he had just led a revolution based on a tax revolt. A system where people can just decide to overthrow the government whenever they disagree with it, it wouldn't work. I mean, imagine if we apply that today. If the conservatives wanted to overthrow Biden, and I'm sure a lot of them do, um, then they they could change it. But then the liberals are going to come and want to change that because everyone has different ideas about what the country should even look like. Even back then, it was the Federalists and Anti-Federalists. Are the Federalists going to take over the government whenever Jefferson is elected? Because they they don't want to live in a place where you know, farming is number one and all this other anti-federalist stuff. If you keep splitting hairs, yeah, you're never going to be able to have everyone agree on everything. So if everyone's able to just revolt anytime they disagree, well, a certain amount of disagreement has to be part of the system. I agree. And with the the Whiskey Rebellion, a big difference is that they had representation and they had a judicial system that could have backed them up or vice versa. You know, there were legal means to deal with that issue and they didn't go for that i guess they went a little too extreme with the british versus the colonists example you could maybe make a case that there was less of a legal route for them maybe but the principle still holds everything is not permissible when you have a democracy agreed everything is not permissible only 40 to 45 percent of white male Adult colonists were patriots. About 20 were 20% were royalists, and the rest were neutral. They just kind of didn't really have much of an opinion either way. Though the patriots were a slight plurality, they weren't a majority. And if that's the whole basis of the democratic system that we're going to adopt majority rule, they weren't even the majority when the war started. It changed as the war went on, of course. Of course, like a lot of those neutrals jumped onto the, the patriot bandwagon. A few of them, I guess, went to the loyalist side too. But when the war started, when they were all mad about it, it wasn't even a majority. That's fair. And it's showing even the divide back then. You can't just rebel against authority because 45% want to rebel. 20% love it the way it is. 35% about just, you know, whatever. They don't really care either way. What say you? I say that you're, you're right. And my only disagreement would be that, thankfully, the majority rule wasn't the only law of the land that was adopted after the revolution you know there was uh, obviously a system of federalism and a system of balance of powers and representative government and rights and the idea of inalienable rights so i guess you could look at it from the perspective of oh our inalienable rights are being trampled on so it doesn't matter whether the majority dislikes it or likes it whatever Our rights are being abused by the king. We got to do something about it, no matter if there's a majority or not. A majority 
or a minority can't vote away your rights. Rights are rights. And that's what they probably would argue. Okay, I'm cool with that. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather pay a small tax without representation or a large tax with representation? That's a good question. And if I could guarantee that the small tax would remain small, I might give away some of my representation. But I know history, and I know those taxes never stay small for long. So I would rather have representation so at least there's a chance, a small chance. Maybe it's a snowball's chance in hell that I could shrink that tax down or get the government under control. Yeah, because democracies are known for low taxes. (laughs) Fair. Fair point. Look at Europe. I know. It's terrible. Look at Saudi Arabia. They have zero in, well, less than 5% income tax. I know. When you compare it to us, it's, it's, it's a nightmare, really, like when you think about it, how many taxes we pay. Now, I'd say looking back, like I said, to episode one, Anacyclosis, check it out. It's good. Monarchies aren't intrinsically evil. Democracies aren't inherently good. And I don't know if they would have agreed with that or not. The what founders? Yeah. If you would just pose that question to them, um, they may have, have agreed with you that they aren't inherently evil. I'm wondering, like, if, if they'd started the revolution and then King George had died and been replaced by a virtuous king, I wonder if they would have backed off. Maybe. I doubt it. Well, a lot of what angered them was just antagonism in some respects. Now, they did, I'll give the British some credit, they did back off. When they saw that the colonists were getting a little rowdy over there, they said, okay, we'll back off on some of these regulations. We'll back off and repeal some of these acts, some of these tariffs, some of these uh, taxes. And so they did give them a lot of leeway, relatively speaking. So it's hard for me to, to get completely on the bandwagon of characterizing them as super evil because they did appease them some and that counts for something i think it has to and as i said tax levels by the british were very small in reality not huge i think it's just the more the more the principle of it that made them angry yes now i won't try to justify mercantilism except to say that it was the trendy economic philosophy of its time and everybody was doing it it's not great but productionism still plays a major part in our political dialogue trump sure used it to his advantage in 2016 when he got those midwest states conservatives especially modern conservatives like protectionism it's a very actually that's not entirely true there's a bunch of different branches of the republican party like we mentioned in that i think it was episode 10 yeah yeah a lot of them are super free market types but a lot of them are old school protectionists yeah that's fair that's fair they are divided my last point, and then I can stop being annoying for a few seconds. Monarchists would counter that representation argument by saying that the monarch represents all subjects. Um, it doesn't necessarily require a legislator to make that true. So even though the colonists may not have liked what they were doing, you're saying that he still represents all subjects. That's so what the king came back and said mm-hmm. when they objected. He said, well, I represent everybody. I'm the king. I have everybody in, in my mind when I'm proposing legislation or doing what i will yeah i guess he he has a whole empire to look at after however if we go back to the whole english law and the magna carta thing a lot of those reforms which were done you know a hundred hundreds of years before this were based on the idea that an absolute monarch is bad and that you need parliament and you need representation to keep him in check and that's probably what they were trying to tap into yeah i understand that Now, let me ask you this and enter into another discussion. When is rebellion justified? I would say that rebellion is justified when you have no other option, legal or otherwise. I can see why you'd say that, but are we really going to say that life under Great Britain was so terrible that revolution was simply choosing the option of self-defense against the inevitable alternative of slavery and death? It's an exaggeration to say that there was no other option. What other option could they have pursued? Just living under the not bad conditions that they were living under. That would be an option. Continue to pursue their interests and push for some form of uh, representation. And just suck it up. I mean, I'm going to talk about it a little later, but lots of countries did do that and they turned out really well. Yeah, like Hong Kong. (laughs) Hong Kong didn't turn out bad because of the British. I know, I know. They've turned out bad because of the Chinese. That's a, that was a low blow, and it was totally off base. But I don't know. That's the first thing that came to my mind. What about India? Well, India is an example of a more violent mm-hmm. uh, interaction. 
for, you know, secessionism. But it occurred much later. I don't think the British pushed back quite as much on India. I think they kind of let them go a little easier because it was in the post-colonial era, right? Yeah, yeah, t- very different eras there. So I guess that's, that's kind of tomato-tomato. But it is worth mentioning. I don't know who brought this up, but I've just heard this thrown around that just imagine if India had been under the control of uh, the Russians. Do you think we would have known who Gandhi was? Like, it's only because the British were actually pretty decent to these people that they allowed Gandhi to exist and to actually protest. So something to think about there. Yeah, India was almost communist at one point. They were socialist in the 60s, 70s, 80s, I think. And it's hard to compare India with America. They're so different. They are. Uh, The colonists and their representatives had requested time and again the chance to have a say in England's lawmaking. They were rejected. So I guess that was one of the the pathways that they just tried to take. They tried to just request, hey, let us have a say. Not a big say, just a say. And England said, nope. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, Britain could have compromised some and continued to let them mostly govern themselves. That's my general opinion on every government anyway, but not just for colonies. Kind of should let local governments run as much as they can. So that's, that's my response. When it comes to international politics, might makes right. If you have the will and the means to secure power for yourself, do it. All is fair. So in that sense, what America did, whether we think it's right or wrong, whether it was justified in their laws or England's laws, this is international politics, baby. There's an ocean between those two places, the colonies and Britain. And what they decided to do is legit. Well, that's some BS. Uh, That justifies every (laughs) evil thing that people have ever done to each other. You can use that argument to say, well, yeah, I punched you in the face, but I mean, in the end, I won, so I'm right. But that's, uh, like I said, it's only in international politics. Yeah, within, within within a system of government, there's a set of laws, and you all both agree to them, and if you break the laws, okay, it's that's your issue. But there are no international law. Well, there are now, but there shouldn't be. Hot take. Oof. The Geneva Conventions were a mistake. Oh. Changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> but really, though, they only work if everybody agrees to them. And how many countries actually agree to them? Do you think that every single country is is following them no there are countries that are saudi arabia was like the head of the human rights commission at one point (laughs) exactly point proven there the hypocrisy is ridiculous and in international politics people are going to do what they're going to do so you might as well get yours while the getting's good when soldiers are quartered in your own home or your town and weapons and ammo are confiscated you better rebel i agree in general with the latter part of that statement But let me continue to play devil's advocate. It's only understandable that governments would take away gun rights from convicted felons, as we do today in America. If treason and rebellion are felonies, it only follows that they shouldn't, that those who participate in them should not have the right to bear arms. If it's widespread confiscation without trials, then yes, I agree with Dan, of course. But if you have put people to trial and implicated them in rebellion, then I, I think it's understandable and maybe justifiable to take away their guns as we take away guns from murderers and thieves if you do it on a case-by-case basis you're yeah, saying of co- yeah yeah of course if you if you're tried by a jury and you're found guilty of a felony that's reason enough and that's it's reason enough for our current legal system and we're the top gun rights country in the world hell yeah brother and i'd have to think about the quartering of the troops in a state of emergency i'm not really sure it seems like maybe in a state of emergency it could be okay for a little bit Perhaps, and it's really not something we have to deal with anymore. So it's it's because the Third Amendment protects us. The Third Amendment, the least known amendment out of all of them. Well, yeah, it does protect us. But also, just in general, there's really no conceivable need for there to be troops quartered in in like the inside of America. Because we have police and we have um, the National Guard set up and they have their own buildings. Yes. So there's no need to quarter people. No, it's just an unnecessary risk. Mm-hmm. And and there's really never going to be, well, I say never, never say never, as they say. There's probably not ever going to be a situation where we have foreign invaders on our actual soil in large enough numbers to need troops to be quartered in wherever they are. So probably a moot point. And here's my here's my best argument for the revolution here. It's better to nip an issue in the bud than to let it carry on for too long. Evan may argue that the revolution was an overreaction, but I see it as a perfect example of being proactive. 
What was to stop England from raising their taxes? 3% could have easily turned to 5% or 10%. The founders and the colonists at large were way smarter than we are today. Modern Americans are like, oh, you want half my paycheck? Okay, thank you, sir. May I have another? You've got the virgin 21st century Americans and the Chad colonists. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me, can't get fooled again. If the revolution hadn't happened, England would have continued to abuse the colonies. We could learn a thing or two from them. Just saying that 3% tax on tea is lower than all of our sales taxes, even just state sales taxes. Don't remind me. Which applies to all sales, not just freaking tea. Just drink coffee or something, jeez. <laughs> I guess my overall objections can be boiled down to this. The colonists were overreacting big time. American history since the revolution has been rife with abuses that the revolutionaries fought against. And people should follow lawful authority. I know you're going to disagree with that point. Since the British were the ones who chartered the colonists to go to North America, and Britain had been considered their mother country and protector, we must conclude that Britain was the lawful and legitimate authority of the North American colonies. Perhaps. But man, I just love a good revolution, especially when it ends so well and, and just goes so swimmingly, like ours did, thankfully. And considering we are the largest military in the world, the most prosperous economy, the first nation to land men on the moon, and the first country to split the atom, the only nation capable of defending the world against alien invasions also, or at least if the Hollywood movies are anything to go by. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the ends justify the means there. On a philosophical level, I say that the ends can never justify the means, but maybe that's another episode. Evil is evil and good is good. Committing evil in order to accomplish good opens up the Pandora's box, and this philosophy has been used by every tyrant to justify their actions. That being said, America's Revolution was probably the most successful in history, maybe ever. Nice. Alright, let's go over some additional points of contention between myself and Dan. I say slavery would have been outlawed sooner and might have saved us from civil war had we remained a British colony. I think attempts to get rid of slavery would have happened, for sure. England would have tried to, once they did that in their own country, would have tried to extend that to the colonies, for sure. They would have been met with resistance, and I think that would be, had have been another uh, powder keg type deal that would have ignited a revolution anyway. So then our revolution would be based on preserving slavery instead of... <laughs> And preserving individual liberty and freedom and happiness, justice. Oh, you mean, yeah. you mean the state's rights? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would have been just based on that instead of the other thing. So you would, have, you would have kicked the can farther down the road. I think in a lot of these, you'll see that, oh, that probably would have caused the revolution anyway. Britain outlawed slavery in all of its colonies 32 years before America did it itself. Wow. 1833. Oh, that's impressive. Yeah. And it's because there was no major backlash. Uh, there was, though. I mean, they had all those Caribbean islands that were like highly dependent on slave labor. Yeah, but they were islands. They were easier to force into submission. You know, there was I nobody think, to force. I think they the just Americans. paid off all the slave owners, oh, which probably. honestly should have. I mean, let's be real. It should have happened in America, too. Maybe. Maybe that could have worked. I don't know. Uh, well, it should have just been forcefully done, but you pay them off. That's the only constitutional way to do it anyway, because of ex post facto laws. It was it was legal for them to have slaves. And then you passed the law saying that it's not legal to have slaves now. So I think you ought to have paid them off. It would have been expensive, but probably less expensive than a civil war. Anyways, uh, the British would have kept Indian removal from happening as badly because they were preventing westward expansion. Yeah, again, I think as they kind of snuck out farther and farther away, the British would have had a lot harder time keeping them under wraps. And I think things would have just boiled over because they would have said, hey, we're out here fighting on the border with these native tribes. We're just tired of it. We're going to just take their land. And I don't care what Britain says. You know, our colony is going to move out there and do what we're going to do. I, I don't really think that they could have been governed. They can't be controlled. That's probably true. And I also say taxes soon after the war exceeded what was considered abominable by colonists. And that continues to this day even worse. Facts. Okay. American currency was worthless by the war's end. It destabilized the whole economy. There was a whole, I mean, there's a saying like um, something about being as useless as a continental or something. I don't know the exact word. Mm. But they, they just had so much debt and they were printing off money, basically. 
that it was worthless by the war's end. It was also a big cause of the Articles of Confederation having to be done away with. I will accept that, sure. Um, but look how it how we flipped it around. We got the bag and flipped it and tumbled it, and uh, we became a world superpower. So we were doing something right. We just had to go down into a little dip for a while, and then we whoo, skyrocketed back up and skyrocketed to $30 trillion in debt. Stonks. <laughs> America has colonies overseas, and it took over lands without the consent of the people who lived there. Look at Hawaii is an excellent example. The people of Hawaii did not want America there. They had their own king, and the people were mostly not white. They didn't want it, but there was a coup. Apparently some fruit company wanted it to be American. I don't know. Again, I I almost hate bringing up these contradiction arguments because I think they're pretty weak in general. I just wanted to point out like that the British weren't as bad as people say and that we've done the same exact thing. I know it's not it's not a good argument to say. It's like saying that, oh, Christian's bad, therefore Christianity is untrue. Yeah, I agree. It is kind of a stretch. And also a, a lot of what was done at the time could have been rationally justified and they didn't know what was going to happen later. Like the founders didn't know that we were going to be huge hypocrites, and and you know they're the successive generations were going to completely undo everything they did and make a country that would tax them way higher than England ever did them. They didn't know that. You know, if they had, they probably would have just given up and committed suicide. Honestly, uh, they would have just realized there was no, there's no hope. Maybe they did already know that. I mean, you know, the classic example with uh, Benjamin Franklin, you know, we've given you a, re- a republic if you can keep it or something along those lines. He knew history. He knew the nations collapsed. They all did. And they knew that there was going to come a time where the sun would set on this new nation. But they um, they figured it would probably be pretty good for a while, I guess. So why not do it? And it was. It was good for a while. And now it's not. R.I.P. And another, just because I, I just mentioned the contradiction argument, but one more. Uh, look at the modern United States. How far is it from revolutionary ideals? 37% income tax on the highest earners. It was over 90% at one point after World War II. In the 50s, under a Republican president. Gay marriage and abortion forced on all states? Come on, man. What made the American Revolution different from other revolutions? Well, first of all, it was led by uh, disciplined and educated, philosophically-minded people, and not the mob. George Washington also didn't seize power when it was time uh, for him to give it up. He said, okay, I'm just going to give up my power. He didn't really have to, and people wanted him to remain in power. But he said, look, it's in the nation's best interest that we do this. Uh, There was also a great desire for state autonomy, no central authority Uh, to be taken over, or at least a very small central authority. This leads to mistakes being contained only to one state instead of the whole nation. Now, let's also say they had a colonist mindset in that they were independent and they didn't want to be ruled over. This is naturally uh, leading to republicanism. They, They adopted a, in my opinion, genius constitution, safeguarded, and it safeguarded the nation from tyranny, but it gave the federal government enough power to deal with problems. There was limited risk of invasion by real powers, although the Fran- France and the UK did bully American sea commerce for a while, but that's it. Florida and Louisiana were not risks, really. Native American tribes were disunited. Mexico was far away at that time. It was, you know, there was France in the way of yes, Mexico. They weren't able to bring the drugs no. or the rapists. <laughs> Here's a thought experiment. Alternative history. What if America stayed a colony without trying a revolution? Now, I personally don't know that there has ever been a case of a satellite nation that has not tried to break free from the parent country. If they don't revolt over one issue, they usually revolt over another or another. Using America as an example, if it hadn't revolted over the tea taxes and representation, we would have revolted over the issue of slavery, as I mentioned earlier, uh, or the issue of Western expansion. Actually... There are many cases of colonies remaining under the rule of the mother country, even to this day, and one can say that this age is the most anti-imperialist the West has ever seen. I mean, definitely is that case, that the world is more opposed to the West having empire than at any other time in history. That means that these remaining colonies want to be colonies. They're not being forced to be colonies. There are 14 British overseas territories that together are over 270,000 people. 
France has five overseas regions and eight overseas territories, totaling over 2.7 million people. The British Commonwealth is composed of 54 nations that are no longer territories of Britain but maintain friendly relations with Britain. The Commonwealth has over 2.4 billion people in it. Just imagine that. In fact, out of the 54 countries I mentioned, 15 have the British monarch as the official head of state, including Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the Bahamas, and many other island nations. So trying to say that the only options are slavery to the British or violent revolution, it's extremely incorrect. In fact, Canada peacefully became an independent nation in 1867. So it's not just a modern phenomenon. As the young kids say, today I learned... It's crazy that two out of every seven people, over two out of every seven people in the world live in a place that was Britain at one point. Yeah, it's just a (laughs) testament to their enormous empire. Incredible. France is extensive, too. You should look at a map. It's just, it's got islands all over the world and a few countries here and there. Oh, yeah, and so many African countries. There's French Guyana, French Guinea, Mm -hmm. uh, a ton of islands, too. Anyways, I agree that slavery would have become a touchy subject if the U.S. had remained a British colony. The British Parliament outlawed slavery all throughout its territories in 1833, a full 32 years before Congress abolished slavery all throughout the United States. Britain may have made an exception for America or had been delayed by American objections. Maybe the North would have remained British and the South would have seceded? I don't know. The British Navy could have helped suffocate the South in the case of a civil war, and it would have provided troops. Or maybe they would have just cut their losses and let the Confederacy be its own nation. We can never know for sure. Westward expansion probably would have happened, and the British would have turned a blind eye, but perhaps they would not have let these outlaws form new states in the new territories. This would have diffused the slavery issue since the creation of slave and free states was a major reason for tension. Now it's time for the takeaways. There are many reasons for the revolutionary spirit of colonial America, and the Declaration of Independence is definitely worth reading. The American Revolution had many effects, both good and bad, depending largely on your ideology. The right to revolt is still a contentious point among political theorists, but as far as this political theorist is concerned, the right to revolt is a right held by all men. Not women? Yeah, women stay in the kitchen. (laughs) Finally, I'm an impractical person who chooses to embrace public hatred and often takes the minority position. Maybe I deserve to be tarred and feathered. We're going to throw rocks and snowballs at you. Lingering questions. Why do so many places choose to remain a colonial possession even today? Protection. I'd say also um, economic prosperity, mm-hmm. being connected to all these other British nations or British territories and the British mainland. It's just, it, it's a good time. Yeah, and it may just also be a cultural thing. You know, in certain places, it's not it's not as important to preserve your your culture there. You'd rather just preserve the traditions of having the British in your life, you know, or in your political sphere. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't live in those places, so I can't really speak to it. But I would imagine that there's just a, just a cultural thing in a way. I don't know. I mean, look at how obsessed Americans are with the monarchy over there. True. And how obsessed the British themselves are. I mean, they're like even bigger than celebrities to them the royals are are the royals good they should be bigger celebrities than our celebrities (laughs) yeah i'll take uh kate middleton over kim k any day of the week amen why didn't america have a reign of terror or other violence after the revolution i'd say it was largely due to the fact that they were attacking an other who was outside of the country yes the british were you know out there they weren't one of they mostly weren't in america Unlike, say, the French Revolution, where the enemies were within, the landed nobility, the clergy, all that, yes. were, were the enemies that, that had to be eliminated in their train of thought in order for the state to go back to a good state. Yes, and so there had to be a purge, you know, yeah. and so you had to be looking around every corner for uh, people among your own people in your own towns to hunt down and execute because they could be helping the the aristocracy or supporting the monarchy Mm -hmm. i'd say also um america did have a tiny form of this in that they didn't they took the land away from the loyal loyalists and uh they would not give it back after the war Mm, so they just stole it for the most part now let me ask you this do you like the declaration of independence or the constitution better 
The declaration is definitely a more epic, stick-it-to-the-man type document, and it's a little shorter, so it's a little bit of an easier read. And it's just really inspirational uh, when you go through it, especially when you consider how dangerous it was to pen that document and sign your name to it. It was basically a death warrant if they lost the war. So when you consider that context, it becomes pretty macho, pretty manly, and pretty epic. Although I will say the Constitution's preamble is awesome, and it's cool just to see how our government was originally set up. When would things get bad enough for you to advocate revolution, if ever? Well, it's pretty simple. Uh, if the Pope comes out against the reigning person in my country, if the Pope comes out against Joe Biden, yes, sir. Yes, boss. Yes, yeah, for me, the, uh, oh, I'm, I'm partly joking. Partly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As for me, I am a self-proclaimed uh, boogaloo advocate. And so I would rather let's get it over with right now than try to delay the inevitable. So whenever y'all are ready, let's get after it. Let's go. I'd say also on a more uh, honest angle that if it's a life or death situation for the people, especially like a good deal, a good number of the people, then it can't be just to get rid of the tyrant. If they're that bad, if they are really truly barbaric, like the uh, founders claimed uh, King George was. But when it comes to a planned revolution, if the ruler is that inept and that tyrannical, probably someone's going to take care of it without you being involved. Someone's going to assassinate him. And then, you know what the Thomas Jefferson said? Oh, yes. I will paraphrase it. The uh, tree of liberty must, from time to time, be watered with the blood of patriots and tyrants. He may have said refreshed, not watered, but... I think it's watered. Yeah. Great quote, but he was, as you informed me, he was talking about the French Revolution and saying, well, you know, if you want to bake a cake, you got to break some eggs. And, you as know, Lennon he was, says, you have to break eggs to make an omelet. <laughs> yeah. So it is kind of awkward when you think of that quote in that context because so many people were beheaded. But sometimes that's what it takes. <laughs> That's all for today's show. Join us again next time for even more ancient wisdom.